what I like about a crowd this size is there's going to be some of us here that have just had a regular, consistent, even daily diet of the Word of God from the time that they were just children. And, and we've come to it and it's shaped our entire lives. But also, likely, probably, in a crowd this size, there are people that are just coming to the Word of God for the first time in their lives. Maybe recently, in this just last chapter of your life, you've come and you've started to receive from the Lord in ways that you've never received before. And then probably there is a good number of people that are somewhere in between those two extremes. But if I could say a word of encouragement, both to, to you that have been in the Word your entire lives, and I'm sure you can testify to what I'm going to share here, but also to those of you that feel like you're behind. You feel like, man, I just, I'm never going to be able to catch up. It's too much of my life I spent away from the Word of God. The Lord has a way of catching you up somehow. And for those of us that have been in the Word so long and so consistently, He still surprises us. He still shows us things from His Word that we didn't expect. And this morning, I want to share one of those things with you. I just love it. It's a passage that we've all read a million times, and then just something just jumped out at me that I'd never really properly noticed before. So we're in Matthew chapter 28, and I invite you to turn there to that chapter and follow along. We've already read the account of the women coming to the tomb. And also remember in this, in verses 1 through 10, it was also the guards, um, in verse 4, for fear of this angel, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now let's pick it up in verse 11. And we see a continuation of the story of the guards. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So... They took the money, and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those last few verses, that's where we as a local church have received our mission. Our purpose as a church is to accomplish those final verses. The Great Commission is what we call it. We are all about going and making disciples. You make disciples by sharing the gospel. And disciples are identified, they identify themselves when they come and they get baptized. I just heard just this morning, someone else came and said, hey, we're interested in baptism. One of the, one of the family members is interested in getting baptized. What an amazing step. That's the disciple identifying himself to the world. But what I find so striking about this passage is the end of verse 15, where the false narrative, the story that the 
elders in the council had told the guards to share that Christ's disciples had come and stolen the body in the middle of the night. At the end of verse 15, it says, This story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So at the point of the writing, that story had been spread. And so what we see here are two opposing stories advanced. Two competing gospels. The gospel and the anti-gospel. The living truth and the false narrative. Both of them were shaped in some way by the events that transpired on this morning, as recorded in chapter 28. And these two competing gospels, in some sense, are still with us today. Still present today. One of these two competing gospels uh, shape the aspirations of every human in existence in this world. Every soul that is present in this room, your aspirations, your hopes, your confidence is shaped by one of these two gospels, the true gospel or the anti-gospel, the other gospel, an alternative to the gospel. And just as the resurrection of Jesus Christ defined both of these gospels, so the resurrection of Christ will shape your life as well. And I've put it in the notes and I see it in this passage, five key actions in every life. Every human is about these five actions in some way. And the resurrection of Christ determines how you go about these five actions with radically different results depending on which gospel you adhere to. If you're adhering to the gospel of verse 15, it's going to be poor results. If you adhere to the gospel of verse 18, they're going to be spectacular results. So let's examine these five relevant actions, uh, these critical actions that every human takes. Uh, every These five actions... Or in every human's life, they're defined by one of these two Gospels, and they're demonstrated in this passage. So let's look at them one by one. And in this process, some of you are going to find out, you're going to discover, wow, I, I, I'm here on Sunday morning, it's Easter, I assume that my life is being shaped by the Gospel, but perhaps through the conviction of the Word of God, you're going to find out, wow, I, I didn't realize that something else is shaping my life, influencing my decisions and directing my path. So let's look at this together. And the first one that every human is involved with, we see all of all the people involved in this story, first of all, are going about fighting fear. Fighting fear. In verse 4, as I mentioned, we see, for fear of this angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. In verse 5, we see, the angel says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. So the guards are afraid because they saw it happen. They saw the angel descend. The women are afraid because something is amiss here. In verse 8, we see it again. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and now mixed with great joy. We see fear also in verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. We see fear again in verse 14, where the guards have been given this alternate version of events. 
they say, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble because naturally the guards are afraid for their lives. If the story comes back to their boss that they fell asleep when they were supposed to be guarding the tomb. So we have all these different people having a fear in their life for different reasons. And depending on which gospel you adhere to, you're going to react to that fear differently. But every human being faces fear. If someone tells you they're not afraid of anything, they're a liar. Everyone is afraid of something. There's parents here that are afraid they might lose their child. There's people here afraid they might lose their spouse. Fear that you might, there's people here living in sin, afraid you might get found out. There's all kinds of fear that attack us in life. And when I look at this passage, I know that there's, there's no deep theological kind of academic concept here when it talks about fear. These are just very real things. The guards were afraid they were going to lose their job or lose their life. The women were afraid because this was not the situation they expected when they came and they were confronted with an angel. The guards were initially afraid just because of the presence of this angel. He descended from heaven. It caused an earthquake. He was white. It was like lightning. When you read events in scripture of people coming in contact with angels, they're always afraid. Here they were so afraid they fell down like dead men. I've read accounts where it seems that people present day have had interactions with angels and the ones that I believe the most are the ones where the people are terrified. In all scripture we see these are uh, frightening beings. So there's no, no deep um, theological truth here as far as the fear. It's just plain old real fear. And what I like about that is I can identify to that. I, I can relate with that kind of fear. Everyone here has something that you're afraid of, some kind of fear that tries to penetrate into your life. And here we see the same kind of fear, but two different gospel solutions are offered. The true gospel solution and the anti-gospel solution. And notice, too, as we just evaluate, we're going to take this sermon and just compare the two different versions of the gospel and the first one that just left out at me was fear. That's why we're addressing it first. But here's the reality. Every one of us comes to faith because we get, we get some benefit out of it. We're not just altruistically worshiping God. We come to God because He offers something that we need. And if you reject God, you're going to go to something else that falsely offers what you need. But this is the way God's designed it. We come to the gospel and He gives us something to fight fear with. So let's first look at the anti-gospel and see what their solution was to fear. And they have, there's two strategies. And this gospel is marked by a false story that the, that the disciples came and stole the body. But really there's the, the true gospel and then every other option is a false gospel. And we know there's going to be many, many antichrists. John prophesied that in 1 John. He said there's going to be many antichrists. And there's many antichrists now, and there's many more that will come. And any solution outside of Christ, what, what is their solution to fear? There's two possibilities. One, if you are following anything other than the gospel, you have the choice. You can maybe ignore reality. That's one common strategy for things that bring fear into our life is we just pretend that it didn't happen. Here, these guards were eyewitnesses. They saw it happen. 
Think about it. The entire first generation of Christians, they just heard an account that someone else gave to them. These guards saw it with their own eyes. And they chose just to pretend that they didn't see it. They chose just to go on with their life and pretend that the reality that they knew didn't exist. And that's what happens with a lot of people that follow false gospels. They think about people that deny Christ, people that have no hope in the afterlife. They put off this reality that one day I'm going to die. These guards had to be thinking, at some point, I'm going to be laying in a tomb. And what's going to happen to me then? How could, if only something could happen to me like happened to that guy. I saw him come out of the tomb. But many people, without finding their hope in Christ, they just put off what they know to be a reality. They pretend it won't happen. These insurance companies always try to sell life insurance and they talk about if, uh, you know, if the, un- if, if the unthinkable should happen. If? We know death is going to happen. Unthinkable? Obviously, death is going to happen to everyone. But those that ignore Christ, ignore the reality, they put it off. Here's another strategy that the anti-gospel uses to deal with fear in our life. They strategize, manipulate the situation, try to mitigate the loss. And we see that in verse 14 where they say, okay, if, if this comes back to the governor's ears, we're going to take care of you. We'll go. We'll try to keep you out of trouble. We're going to do the best we can. I don't know if they really had the ability to keep these guards out of trouble. We don't know what happened. Maybe these guards went on and, and, and became executed for their failure of duty. But we know that the best you can do outside of Christ is just try to mitigate the damage. Try to strategize your way around whatever is you're afraid of. You're going to do your best. You're going to eat healthy. You're going to take your vitamins. You're going to save for the future. You're going to plan for your retirement. You're going to do all those things. But none of them are a permanent solution. In this account, what do we see as the true gospel solution? In verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And here we see the one solution, the only solution to that which causes fear in your life. And that is to seek Jesus who was crucified. That's it. Paul knew that that was the only thing he had to offer anyone. Paul went all over the known world sharing the gospel, planting churches, and... You know, 1 Corinthians is a great example because 1 Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian church was a troubled church. They had real world problems just like me and you. And Paul came and in chapter 2 and verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, he said, When I came to you, I didn't have lofty words of wisdom. I didn't have fancy speech. I determined to know nothing among you except this. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because Paul knew that was the only thing that would solve any problem in your life is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then towards the end of that same letter, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he says, I just want to remind you what I first brought to you when I was with you. And I'm bringing it to you because this is the foremost, the most important thing that Christ died according to the Scriptures. And that He rose again. We have to depend only on Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. There's no other solution to death. There's no other solution to whatever it is that ails you outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way. That's why we come to this book. There's a lot of pastors that 
preachers, I should say, that preach all kinds of things. That I call it the Reader Digest version. They've got a good joke inserted in there and they've got little quips about life and quotes. And I would be terrified to get up in front of people if I didn't have this book. I, I don't know where they get their ideas from. This is the only thing I know to go to. And this is how I preach, this is how I live, and I know this is how you live as well. It's Jesus Christ, there's no other solution. There's a second action that we see here, that every human life somehow, one way or another, is defined by whichever gospel they choose to follow. And not only is it fighting fear, but it's forging belief. Forging belief. And by that I mean the shaping, the hammering out, the forming, the establishing of your belief. The solidification of your faith. The convictions that you are confident are true. That's the forging of your faith. And, you know, the thing about forging is that it involves extremes. There's dangerous conditions. There's extreme heat. There's hammering. You have to reach a melting point. There's harsh impact. But at the end, it produces Metal that can't be bent. It produces metal in a shape that's desired by the one that's forging the metal. And, you know, um, in my research, I was just trying to look a little bit and see what kind of forges are out there. And let's put the picture of, of forge up there on the screen, please, Rachel. Look at, those are people in the front. Look how big that is. And they have forges that have 22-ton hammers. That's 44,000 pounds smashing down on iron or steel. Or they have hydraulic presses that can compress titanium. And you're talking about heat. Titanium melts at 3,000 degrees, more than 3,000 degrees. The surface of the sun, I believe, is only 10,000 degrees. So you're approaching that kind of heat level. And when I see that image and when I look at the events happening in this person's life and knowing some of the things that many of you are going through, it feels like we're in the forge. Life does that to us. Life puts us in circumstances that seem too much to bear. And life keeps hammering away, hammering away, hammering away. And sometimes it seems like it's chaotic, but depending on which gospel you lean into, It'll either identify purpose and well-being in your life, or it will be for your destruction. And so, in this passage, just looking at the ladies as they come and they approach the tomb, already their world has been shattered. Their Messiah has been killed. And the unexpected, they, of, of all the people that they expected never to die, it would be Jesus. But He did. And now they don't know what they're going to do. And maybe you've been at a point in your life like that, where the one thing that you never expected to happen, happened. And where do you go from there? It's in those moments that our faith is forged, that our belief is solidified. It's in those moments where we're most vulnerable, closest to destruction, that God graciously comes in and He leads us to an understanding. He brings us under His wing. He comforts us. And our faith is forged. But there's another meaning of the word forge. Another definition in the English language. Forge can also mean to counterfeit. Forge a signature. 
you forge a, a um, financial note and it's a fake it's a phony have you ever gotten fake money before I've had people try to pass off fake money and here's the thing it's useless I can't I can't go to the bank and exchange it they don't want any part of that wherever that fake money whoever's the last hand to hold the fake money they lose out and when I look at these guards I see they were forging their belief in the sense that they were constructing a false narrative they saw what happened and they chose to create a different belief system that was contrary to what they experienced. They knew the truth, they experienced the evidence, but they constructed an alternate belief. And so it's interesting that in this, in this competing gospel, this alternate gospel, a lack of evidence is not the barrier. You know, some people strongly believe that if we can just get others to understand the gospel, if I can just explain away any objections they might have, then they'll believe and then they'll understand. That's not how it works. People erect objections to the gospel because they don't want to believe in it. And so, in all of life circumstances, you're either forging your faith or you're forging your faith. You're either solidifying your belief system or you're constructing a false belief system. And we see both examples in this passage. And depending on which gospel you believe in is going to change the outcome of that fire that we're all in. We, we have no choice to be in the fire of life, the suffering of life, the consequences of a sin-soaked world. We, ha we can't opt out of that. And no matter what, we're going to receive blows. But you get to choose who it is that's going to deliver the blows. It could be a faithful, caring, craftsman, a divine forger, one who knows exactly what he's trying to produce in your life. And every blow is measured and precise. And even though it hurts in the moment, he knows he's making you into something new and better and stronger. You can take those blows or you could follow the false gospel, whatever it is that gives you hope. And you could receive the villainous blows of the destroyer. Two totally different intents. And whichever gospel you've chosen will determine the result. Not only, so continuing with the five actions that every human is involved in, fighting fear, finding, uh, I'm sorry, forging our belief, but then also finding value. Whichever belief system you adhere to determines where you find your value. Just look at, in this passage, we can deduce, we can figure out where these guards, these creators of the false gospel, we can see where they got their value from. And many of us may be sharing that. These men, they, they valued maybe their occupation. They didn't want to lose their job. That's where they found their value. That's where they found their identity. Uh, they valued money. It says in verse 12, um, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. There might have been some back and forth, but eventually the soldiers found their price. With this amount of money, I will believe whatever you want me to believe. And everyone here has some price. What would be your price? What is it that would cause you to turn from Christ? 
they valued money, they valued their occupation. Above all else, they valued, they found their value in self-preservation. Self-preservation. No matter what, they didn't want to lose their lives. But what do we see in the true gospel? Where do we find our value in the true gospel? We find our value in Jesus. And here's the amazing thing about that. The value that we have in the true gospel, the value is external to us. So it can't be taken away. I can't mar that value. I can't diminish it. It can't be taken away. It is not dependent on my ability or my beauty or my weight or my accomplishments. It's outside of me. It is Jesus Christ. He is the, all the value I have. Everything I have, I find in Him. And I can't compromise that. I can't. It's there. It's fixed. That's the beauty of the true gospel. Because we find our value not in something that we generate, not in something that we can achieve or acquire, but we find our value in Jesus Christ. There's another, there, you know, there's a false gospel out there that's saying that Jesus looked through eternity and he saw you and he just knew you were so valuable that he had to come and die for you. That is not true. That, that's pretty blasphemous. The reality is Christ came and he died to give you value. It's his death that gives you any value at all. And this is, this is, this is a social hamster wheel in trying to find your value in anything other than Christ. You'll never find it. You'll never be satisfied. Uh, just, just to be transparent, as a pastor, I remember one time a, a, a pastor where I interned. And so he, he's a church of, I don't know, maybe four or 5,000 people. He said, Ryan, if you're not satisfied with 90 people, you're not going to be satisfied with 900 people. That, what a great word. I'm not finding my value in any accomplishment or any... In it, just any measure out there, my value is in Jesus Christ. Your value is in Jesus Christ. We're fighting fear. We're forging our faith. We're finding our value in one gospel or the other. And then, fourthly, we're following Christ. Following Christ. You might say those that believe in the false gospel, they don't follow Christ. But let me tell you, everyone is following a Christ. Christ is the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Chosen One. Everyone on the planet is following some Christ. That person or thing in which they place their hope. That person or thing in which they find their worth. In which they receive acceptance. Everyone has a Christ. Many people... Marry their Christ. Many people procreate their Christ. Um, some people find their Messiah in the gym mirror or in their wallet or their occupational success. They follow their Christ on Instagram or they buy their Christ from behind the gas station counter. Everyone has a Christ. And unless it's this Christ in this gospel, Every other Messiah is going to let you down. Now, I'm sure most people here, probably everyone here would say, well, I, I follow the true Christ. I follow Jesus Christ. He's my Messiah. Let me ask you three questions. Maybe you can write these down and reflect on them later on this week or this evening and kind of help you identify who your true Messiah is. You want to write these down? You want to think about these? 
you can answer this question, whose opinion do I most fear? Or the flip side of that same question is, whose approval do I most seek? Whose opinion do I most fear? Whose approval do I most seek? And if you answer that question, honestly, you're going to find out who your Messiah is. And in that, in that question, we discover that uh, you may not even love your Messiah. You may hate your Messiah. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are desperately seeking the approval of people they don't like. But they're stuck on that hamster wheel. Whose opinion do you most fear? Whose approval do you most seek? That's your Messiah. Here's a second question. What will solve your problems? That magic button. You can push it, and whatever whatever it is, the solution will come. What will solve your problems? You identify that, you'll identify your Messiah. I remember when I was younger, just the dream. If I could just win the lottery, generational wealth, that'll solve everything. Even even as a young man, thinking, man, you know what? I could I could hire all the staff for the perfect church. We could buy the building. It'd be perfect. I wouldn't have to take a salary because I've got this generational wealth. Guess what my Messiah was? The lottery. Whatever it is that's going to fix your problems, that's your Messiah. Every other Messiah will fail you. Jesus Christ is the only solution. You know, we've been involved with um, Child Protective Services in different capacities over the years. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the best system we have for taking care of children that are abused, neglected. But you know what? It, it kind of stinks too. It falls short. I'm glad we have it because it would be terrifying if we didn't have it in America. But it's not the solution. It doesn't fix everything. You know what will? When Jesus comes back and he's the great shepherd and the perfect ruler and the perfect father. One last question for you to identify your true Messiah. First of all, whose opinion do you most fear or approval do you most seek? Secondly, what will solve your problems? The third question, if you answer this, you will identify your Messiah. What brings you truly the most joy? What brings you truly the most joy? That's another way to identify who your true Messiah is. Two different Messiahs are offered in the two different Gospels. But everyone's doing it. Everyone's fighting fear, everyone's forging their belief, everyone is finding value in something, everyone is following one Messiah or the other, and here's the other, the last thing that every human being is doing, they're facing eternity. Facing eternity. And one gospel will let you down. One gospel will sustain you. One gospel will give you hope. One gospel just ignores the reality that when you were born, you were placed into eternity and you are an eternal being. You will live forever. The stupidest argument you hear from atheists. Does it bother you that you didn't exist back in, in 1923? Why doesn't that bother you? Because I didn't exist back then. Well, when you're dead, you won't exist either. No, that's, I exist now. And I want to stay existing, and I know I'm going to exist forever. The question is, where are you going to exist? And the false gospel, here's what the false gospel does. It hangs on to the present with all its might. 
at all costs, it doesn't want to lose out on the present. Even Peter struggled with this. When Jesus first started saying, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Remember, Peter took Jesus aside. No, don't do that, Lord. You can't die. What was Peter doing? He was trying to hang on to what they had. Didn't want to lose it. Didn't want to lose it. And you know what the teaching that Jesus went to immediately after he rebuked Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Do you know what the teaching was? He said, you have to die to live. The seed has to be planted if there's going to be new growth. You have to die to yourself if you're going to live to God. You have to be willing to lose if you're going to gain. That's the true gospel. Peter eventually learned that. Jesus offers that to us now. And that's the reality that is facing us on this Easter morning. We're all facing eternity. One gospel will see us through to paradise. Just as Jesus hung on the cross and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. The alternative to that is terrifying. Which eternity are you going to be facing? So we're going to close today again with a song. There's a reason we, we close with singing. You know, it's, it's the, it's natural for humans to sing when there's something to celebrate. You go to a birthday party, what do you do? You sing. You're at a restaurant and a stranger is having a birthday. Everyone joins in. They sing, right? Because it's something worth celebrating. We have something worth celebrating here today. People sing when they're happy. People sing when they're together. You know, in Europe, the soccer teams, they watch their team play and they all have their own unique songs that they sing out in the stadium. Around the house, I'm always singing to my kids. I've got special songs for each one of my kids and, uh, and I'm such a terrible singer. You, you can never identify what the song was, but I, I know it. I make a joyful noise. I enjoy singing. And church, we're going to end today. We saved the best for last. We have an amazing Easter song that we want you to stand now and join us in singing. We're going to sing about the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, the victory that was bought by the resurrection. And, and can I just encourage you, let's, let's do it with some gusto. Let's do it with some smiles on our faces. Let's really kind of blow the roof off this place because this is worth celebrating. We have a hope that the whole world is looking for. Today we celebrate that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ.